I want to be strong, to have the flexibility and confidence to play soccer with my kids or volleyball on the beach. I want to feel energetic and spontaneous with my husband. I want my body to feel the freedom to move and enjoy life, to hike Yosemite, surf in Hawaii, bike to the beach, to have fun with friends and not be limited. I want to do things that love my body, to feel and experience all the sensations of life. I want my body to be a force in nature that overcomes difficulty and resistance. I believe in health and wellness and daily consistent exercise. You have cancer is a phrase most people don't ever want to hear from their doctor. I am here today with my good friend, Wendy Gableman, who heard these words from her doctor eight years ago. She is living this journey and here to tell us about her story of hope and healing. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you, Beth. It's really good to be here. Thanks for being here with me. Tell us a little about a little bit about your life now. What does life look like for you now? Life is very good, thankfully. Um, yes, I am married. Uh, my husband and I have been married for 27 years, which is so hard to believe. And uh, we have four kids. Um, our oldest is 23, then 20, 17, and 15 three boys, and then our youngest is a girl. And um, I am a nurse. I work part-time. I've worked part-time since my oldest son was born. And um, I mostly am just focused on raising kids and a family and working part-time and other relationships that are important to me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, So when were you diagnosed with cancer? And could you tell us a little bit about that day? that you heard these words. Yeah, Um, it was in the summer of 2011. I had had several months of symptoms that, you know, were kind of inconclusive as it is with a lot of cancer situations. Uh, My cancer is called multiple myeloma, which is a cancer of the blood and bone marrow. So it's not an obvious thing like a mass that you feel somewhere. Um, So there were several months of different tests trying to figure out what it was. Ultimately, in July, I needed to have a bone marrow biopsy uh, because uh, the other tests were inconclusive. So we knew we would get the results of that, and it could have been other things like leukemia or other types of syndromes um, were all on the list of what it could be. So I had that biopsy done, and then actually it was a phone call. The doctor called me on the phone. Um, We were told the results would take about two weeks, but a week after she actually called and um, talked with me about it on the phone. What was that like? What did you feel? It, it's really strange because um, at that moment, honestly, I was just glad to know something. It had been so many months and that was really hard um, waiting and wondering. Um, so we were prepared to just find out what is it so we can tackle it. I honestly didn't think it would be cancer though. I thought it was maybe uh, another issue. Um, I mean, it was always a possibility, but in my gut, I just didn't, I really didn't think so. I mean, I was 40 years old. I was a healthy person. I, I just, it was a surprise, that's for sure. So I think it was a mixture of surprise and shock and a little bit of relief of finding out, finding what was going on. Hmm. And how was that with your husband, this diagnosis? Because this is a diagnosis you're hearing, but also your spouse is hearing. How was that dynamic? Yeah, well, um, 
that this is a little backstory for that. Uh, my husband at the time was a youth pastor and the pastor of missions at our church, which meant he would take groups on missions trips. That summer, for months in in preparation was a trip planned to China to teach English to students in China. So during this time of the diagnosis, um, you know, we both together were praying and trying to make a decision if he should cancel the trip or go, because at that time, it was just all investigative, lots of appointments and such. So I, you know, of course, he was willing and, and offered and wondered if he should even go to China um, while we're in this waiting period. And honestly, Beth, I just, I had a good peace about it and, and wasn't feeling frantic at the moment. And I encouraged him to continue going. One of our, our oldest son went on the trip as well. And I asked him to go. So he did. Um, the thing is, is that we expected the results to come back when he would be home, as the doctor had told us it'd be two weeks. So it came a little early. So I actually called him while he was in China <laughs> and had to tell him over the phone. And that was really difficult, I think, for him. But I knew he would want to know right away. Um, so that was hard that we were not um, together. together at the time. But we were together, you know, in in this whole journey and in spirit as well. And mm -hmm. we're able to talk it through. At the time, do you remember what kind of initial worries you had or fears you had? Do you, can you remember what it was like in that first, say, month, two months, just getting this diagnosis and trying to think about that? Yeah, it it was a bit of a whirlwind and pretty overwhelming. I really did not know that much about my multiple myeloma. Uh, my nursing has not had uh, oncology or cancer background so much, and this is a more rare cancer. Um, I guess I usually explain to people it's most similar to leukemia. I think a lot of people know a little bit about leukemia. So I actually had a lot of learning to do and trying to understand what does this mean? What what are the expectations? And of course, you go to reading statistics and all of those things. So yeah, it was a roller coaster of emotions of trying to make sense of this is the diagnosis. This is what I need to do. Oh, this doesn't look so good. Oh, this maybe is hopeful. It, you're just kind of thrown around a bit. Um, so it was it was hard. Um, because at the same time, trying to make doctor's appointments, they wanted to start me on chemo ASAP because it, the doctors were like, wow, this is a, I, it, by the time I was diagnosed, it was a pretty um, far along and aggressive state um, based on the, how the cells multiply. So it, there's all that whole side of things of just the practical aspect of making appointments and making arrangements. And I wanted a second opinion. Um, so I was able to um, get that that appointment when my husband got home, when Mike got home. So, yeah. So it what was did a lot. You, it was a lot to handle at that time. Yeah. What did you learn about that cancer at the time? Like, did they give you this is how long you're expected to live? These are the your treatment options. What What was the your understanding in 2011 as far as life expectancy? Yeah, they don't usually tell you when you come in that, oh, this is your life expectancy or these are the prognosis statistics. They Doctors, you know, understandably, I think this is good. Try to keep it um, positive and this is what you can do. This, These are some success stories because it's really important to um, 
to kind of shape your perspective and how, how you're going to either fight it or what pr- treatments you're going to pursue based on what's available out there. So um, they, at least in my situation, and I don't think many doctors at all would say things like that until it's kind of close to the end where they say, you know, this doesn't look so good. You probably need to prepare for the worst. Um, so for me, it was finding those things online a little bit more through, you know, organizations like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, uh, which my cancer falls under that um, organization, or the American Cancer Society or things like that, so that I could talk with the doctor and say, hey, this is what I found, you know, what do you think? Um, so certainly, you know, I received a lot of information from the doctor about studies and the hopeful medications. Um when we had had that second opinion, the doctor had said these new medications were actually pretty effective to go into remission. So the main goal at that time was to get me into remission as soon as possible. Okay. How long did treatment last for you? Um, it, it, the total of seven cycles, which was spread out over eight months. Okay. So the, after the first four cycles, so for this cancer, it's chemo. And then the plan is um, after chemo, you would have a stem cell transplant. And then after the stem cell transplant, you um, just hope that your body uh, responds well and you just kind of wait um, for it to come back is how the doctors would say it. It's kind of a weird way to say it that way. But um, unlike leukemia, where a stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant, as other people may know of it, it can provide a cure for people. But with multiple myeloma, it is not a cure there is not a cure for this cancer. And that's what was so shocking is that um, there's treatment to kind of knock it down, keep it at bay. But even in the in-between times after a transplant, you're just kind of waiting for it to come back. And then it will come back is what they would say, um, which is what all the statistics show. And then you treat it again and knock it down and just so so the transplant's goal is to prolong your remission before it comes back okay so that was the plan of doing the chemo to get the transplant so in this first year when you were going through treatment what helped you the most well um my goodness uh so much so (laughs) there are so many different aspects to that question um, but maybe I should back up a little bit and tell you that uh, about the the process of um, having a very successful chemo period in the first few months. After that, they retest you and see what your numbers are and prepare you for the transplant. But in that process, I was very surprised to find out that I had some liver problems that were unexpected that don't typically go with this kind of cancer. So it was not it was very out of the norm. And I was worked up at City of Hope. My insurance was Kaiser, which I had a great experience um, with the oncology department at Kaiser. And so for the transplants, they do it at City of Hope. So when I did go there, um, I was surprised to find out that I was not eligible for a transplant because my liver would not be able to tolerate it. And the doctor had said, you know, if it were a cure, then it's up to you if it's worth the risk of you know, possible death from the transplant because your liver may not make it, um, or you can do it, you know, if you want. But since it's not a cure, they were not willing to take that risk. So that was, that that happened as part of the journey, which was a surprise. Um, however, with this kind of cancer, 
there is a lot of research going on, and there are some controversial approaches on how to treat it best. Um, and we were trying to discern all that information and seeing outside physicians outside of Kaiser as well for, at that point, now third opinions, and try to figure out, should I even do the transplant or not without knowing about my liver? So we were asking God for guidance. We were really trying to, I, I honestly, in my gut, I was leaning to not wanting the transplant because it's so damaging to your body, um, which which you need if that's going to save your life. So I'm not against transplants in general, but in my situation, I, I just wasn't, there was something that was holding me back. But of course, you should do it if, you know, if you don't have a good reason not to, at least that was my thought at the time. Um, so when I found out, when we found out that I couldn't have the transplant, Honestly, it was another one of those, wow, we have an answer. You know, it was a little disappointing to find out, find out I have another health issue. But um, at the same time, it was a clear answer to not do the transplant. So in this time, as you were discerning and um, finding these things out, what kept you, what helped you? I mean, what kept your spirits up? What helped you to keep, you know, having hope and joy during yeah. that time. Yeah. And sorry, because I know that was your kind of your question. And I sidetracked back onto that piece of history. Um, I I would say I th- there's really two or three ways to approach that. There's the one would be more the medically. Um, it's, you know, very helpful to get inf- as much information as you can learn all the options. You know, we found doing I did lots of research into different treatments that are done in different clinics all over the country, which have as I mentioned, opposing views. So it's confusing, but um, it was very helpful just to know what's out there. It's helpful to be in Los Angeles in an area where there's a lot of learning going on um, and have options for excellent care. So that's one aspect. The other aspect I would say was extremely helpful having wonderful family and friends, including you, Beth, who uh, were right there by my side and able to help in practical ways such as bringing food and and just visiting or and understanding and so that emotional support is huge and I am so so blessed to have had a big network I mean my mom would cook for us and even do my laundry and other friends cooked and brought meals and helped with our kids and because my youngest was seven at the time and my oldest was 15 so it was kind of just a lot going on in the house at that time as well Um, so that support was huge. But the other aspect for me, which is probably at least equally, if not more important, was the spiritual support because um, having, having facing that, you know, you have this cancer that isn't cure and you look at the statistics and I actually printed them out because I always forget, you know, what they were at that time. But when you look at the median survival level, was 44 months. And I'm thinking what median survival level means is half the people that have that cancer will live 44 months and half will have not lived 44 months. So I'm thinking, okay, in 44 months, that's a little bit less than four years. My daughter will only be 11 at the time. And, you know, that was just, that's what was hitting me is that my kids are young. You know, of course, I think your worst nightmare is to you know, realize that your kids might grow up without a mom or a dad um, due to death. So that was my my driving um, 
I guess, worry and concern the most. So trying to build my faith and encourage my hope, which is really was a spiritual journey, was extremely important to me at the same time. I mean, doing the chemo and all of that, yeah, that's just a necessity in getting through the physical challenges. And the chemo I had, as you recall, it wasn't a bad chemo. I didn't even lose my hair. It was a different kind of thing. Uh, it affected me. I couldn't work any longer, but um, I mean, for that period. But it was the spiritual part, which was extremely necessary for me to learn how to cope with, does God want to heal me? Um, is there any hope for this? Am I going to just follow those statistics? Because prior to that, um, I had always believed uh, that God certainly can heal. Of course he can. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He can do anything he wants. You know, the Bible is full of miracles. And um, being a Christian, you know, someone that follows Christ and what the Bible says, it was just no problem to believe that he can do these things. You know, there's just multiple stories of, of how God healed people, how Jesus healed people, and how he still does today. But the question for me that was the hardest is, um, will he? And I think um, that was where I was challenged so much and really needed that support from other people that helped me discern that. I think it was a growing time for a lot of us in trying to understand how how does healing work or why why is not everybody healed? And these are questions that are still really complex and don't have the best answers for, but it was challenging to my faith. Um, not so much that why did God allow this ha to happen to me? That wasn't a question really that came to me at all, but it was more how can I believe that God will heal me? So having that belief for you, how has that guided you over the past eight years? What? So having this belief changed for you, how did that help you? Yeah. Well, it helps me when I... Um, start to worry or read these statistics or, you know, go into my checkups and and the doctor will say things like, well, we'll just need to keep monitoring because, you know, it's going to come back. We just, you know, like, oh, wow, you've you've gone a few years, you know, without the the um, transplant. You're doing well, but, you know, we'll wait and see. I mean, it's a, it's a constant being told that it's coming back. Um, so it's helped me to believe that God has done a work in my body which he did. He actually healed me of the liver problems as well, which was a shock to the doctors that they don't have an explanation for, um, which is incredible. Um, I never had the transplant, as I mentioned, and I also did not go on the maintenance medications as well, which was another process of discernment and a, a, dis a personal decision. And um, I am still have been healthy and doing well, which is amazing and remarkable. But um, when I start to think about the what ifs and think about, or even doubting, like, well, you know, have I really been healed? And sometimes I would even doubt, you know, I just go back to what I've learned. And that has really helped um, change me. I actually went to counseling for this. Um, because at one point, a few years after I was um, healed or in remission, as the medical doctors would say, I was really struggling a couple years later, just kind of wondering, 
when's it coming back? Is it coming back? And I kind of lost my focus um, on God. So it was helpfully in that it was a spiritual, a prayer counseling situation. And um, God really renewed my my faith and trust in who he is. It's it's basically who I believe he is, that he is the healer. I mean, we're all going to die someday. So it's not like, you know, I'm free from death or getting hit by a car or just like anybody else would be. But it doesn't change the fact that he heals. Mm-hmm. So in your belief of being healed, you continue to go to your doctor's appointments. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, those have been stretched out over the years. Um, in the first couple years, it was every month, blood monthly blood tests and, um, and such. Um, the doctors are at least in my experience, they're very open-minded. I was never, you know, reprimanded or scolded that I shouldn't do this or I shouldn't do that or follow the these new opinions or, you know, even I am doing something which they wouldn't have recommended, which is not doing them um, maintenance therapy. Um, and I've just, I've had a good relationship with my doctor. He's been supportive, kind of curious maybe. I think they... They've admitted that this cancer is, it's kind of on the new frontier. There's a lot of new developments happening, and honestly, they just don't know that much about it. So um, the appointments have been good. I've also seen a different doctor, not through, not a traditional um, cancer doctor, but an integrative MD. She's a, a MD trained at UCLA, and but looking at yourself more holistically, um, so I saw her in the beginning of the process and continue to see her, not often, like, I don't know, once a year or something. And she does a lot of blood tests to uh, check your kind of general health and make sure you're balanced in the ways you're supposed to be and seeing what's wrong. So it was helpful to get all of her guidelines and recommendations at the time and continuing. That's good. So for people that may be listening who have a loved one, who has been diagnosed with cancer, or maybe someone's listening who has a diagnosis of, of cancer. Do you have some resources or books or support groups that have been helpful for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I think I first, I would just say, I'm sorry. You know, it's really hard to go through at any stage in life. It's, it's it just kind of stops you and halts you in your tracks. So it's painful and it's difficult. So I just, my heart is, is with them. Um, I think everyone's situation is so entirely different with cancer. You know, some cancers can be, you know, surgically cut out and then you're done with it. Other cancers are, you know, unfortunately you have to go through months and months of chemo or radiation, which is so draining and difficult to the body and you know mine was different than that as well so I, I wouldn't say there's one cookie cutter thing that I would recommend um, there are a lot of support groups out there for the different cancers like there was a multiple myeloma support group at City of Hope that was available to me I chose not to go simply because it was an extra night of the month that I I just didn't have time for at that time <laughs> I, I didn't want I didn't want to since my approach was so different um, and my situation was so different, I, I just chose not to do that. But um, I think I found more of my support online through survivors groups. That was one thing that was really helpful is just kind of Googling 
I would I would recommend just Google your cancer. So if it's breast cancer survivor stories, I mean I I would put you know multiple myeloma survivor stories, and then it there's several different groups and forums and um, you know groups of people that all share their stories. So I'm a member of a couple of those, and people post things. It's extremely encouraging to hear the stories of people that are doing well. That was really huge for me that I needed to know that this, you know, you're not an anomaly and it is, there are a lot of people doing well. And then people often talk about their journeys, what they did, what they didn't do. So sometimes it's helpful just to know what other things are out there. Sometimes I would see people posting from, I don't know, say Nebraska in some small town and, you know, they don't have the resources or to the university hospitals that we do here. So even for that as a way to get them in touch of, hey, you need to go to some city or some, you know, go to the Mayo Clinic or somewhere where you can um, be looked at differently, get some different opinions, because there's so many different opinions, um, even among doctors, about which to do. So having those forums and support groups, at least online for me, was really, really helpful and encouraging. Mm-hmm. So as in this podcast, I do talk a lot about how obstacles and challenges and, you know, things in life that are just hard and difficult, um, if we have the ability to see and have a perspective of how this could, you know, grow us, change us, make us stronger, um, how, how do you feel like this experience is shaping you or helping you, um, transforming you? What would you say to that? Yeah, that's a really good question. (laughs) Um, I think probably for most people, if if you're literally facing, I have three years to live or five years to live, you know, it, it really does change things in your perspective of deciding what's important today. What's important in this season? What do I want to invest my time in? What do I want to invest my energies in? Um, helping to I, hopefully not get so caught up in the little things of life, but I still do. <laughs> but I think on a grand scale of just realizing my life is potentially a lot shorter than it than I I think prior I expected to live into my 80s to be honest with you. Now, you know, I still struggle with that belief that I was saying, although you know, it appears I'm doing great, but there's that possibility, or at least certainly back then when I look at those statistics, what if I only live 4 years? What do I want these years to look like? So, um it it really changes things a lot in figuring out your priorities and who you want to be, who you want, how you want to invest in yourself and in others around you. I mean, there's practical things such as I was planning to go back to school. Actually, when my daughter entered uh, first grade, I ended up waiting a year. This this came over that summer. I was actually planning to go back when she was in second grade. Well, that got put on hold. You know, I don't know if that really matters anymore. You know, if you're facing, you might live five or 10 years. I don't really care if I get that extra degree. It just doesn't matter. I'd rather spend time with people or doing things that are important to me. Um, So things like that. Yeah, it definitely makes a decision. Or then there's the silly practical things of like, you know, during that time, I gained so much weight from the, um, 
the steroids. And it's like, oh, I need to buy new clothes. It's like, but I don't want to spend all this money on clothes because, I mean, this might sound a little morbid, but, you know, what if I don't even live a year? And I just wasted all this money on clothes. I know it's kind of weird, but I those thoughts went through my mind. So mm-hmm. it kind of changes things about how you yeah want to spend your time and money and prioritize things. So how does this impact you today? Um, I I still want to live like that. I think the further away I get from you know those eight years ago, I probably fall into the trap of a lot of people of having a busy life that sometimes is uh, maybe not as uh, intentional as I want it to be, just kind of getting swept up in the whirlwind of things. Um, but there is there is always that um, intentionality, I believe, that is stronger now than it would have been if I didn't have cancer, that I am much more choosy with what I want to do and and I'm perfectly okay with saying no to things and it doesn't bother me at all I just I'm comfortable in my boundaries and my priorities and and I just am trying to live according to how God wants me to live yeah thank you I think as I listen to you it does make me want to evaluate my life and think about (laughs) what I'm doing and is it important does this really matter you know really taking time to do some self-examination on different activities that I'm involved in and and rethinking, you know, if I had one year to live, is this where I want to spend my time? I think there that is really a, a really good perspective to, th- to have and to think about. And, um, you know, because why are we doing things that aren't that important? <laughs> but that's good. I just uh, think just for maybe people listening who haven't had the diagnosis of cancer, just to maybe encourage, to learn from you, um, to be able to do some self-examination on our life and are we doing things that matter Mm -hmm. or are you getting swept into doing things that other people want you to be doing but don't really matter to you. So Mm -hmm. thank you. I think that's something we all, it's, it's always back there, but it's just when you're faced with a time limit, you know, it kind of fine-tunes it all. Mm-hmm. And all of us are on a time limit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. But it is different. You know, I mean, different. even those long-term goals, yeah. yes, I would have pursued more education or, you know, doing that job on the house or whatever. It It's not that actually wasn't a thing for me. But there's nothing wrong with those things. I think it depends on just, at least for me, being someone that, you know, I'm a spiritual person and I try to follow what God wants because ultimately he knows my future. He is the only one that knows. He knows what is best and I trust him that he is good. So asking him for guidance on those things um, is really important because he's the one that knows. Yeah. Thank you. So I like to end my podcasts with three things or three habits that you do on a regular basis that help you live healthy? (laughs) I have always heard you say that, ask this of everybody, and I've thought, I don't even know what my three would be. Um, So this is good. You've helped me to fine tune my intentionality. Um, So I I actually wouldn't say they were habits. I think it's more perspectives. I think uh, I kind of separated into categories, physical, soul-oriented, emotional, and spiritual. So physically, I would say um, I make sleep a priority. 
I really do. I think that, uh, not that I always get a lot of sleep, but I want to get a lot of sleep and I try to make sure my kids get a lot of sleep. I know I never feel guilty for resting and sleeping. I think there's a lot of healing that takes place in sleep. Our bodies just physiologically need to rest and we are in a society and a culture that doesn't rest. So sleep um, is really important. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the second thing emotionally, I this isn't my little catchphrase, but I heard this once, and I, I really liked it. It's um, pra- putting, oh, now I'm getting it mixed up. It was three Ps. A present people are the priority, or people in your presence are the priority. That's what it is. That's good. <laughs> I'll I remember could, that one. I can just remember it, right? <laughs> um, but um, just really being present with people and not being distracted um, by phone and Facebook. I mean, I think you know me, Beth. I'm not the biggest Instagrammer and, and all that stuff, and I don't answer my emails in a second. And that's a choice. It's, you know, when the phone rings, if I'm in the middle of some, helping my kids doing homework, I don't answer it. Or it's uh, if I'm with someone such as you, you know, having coffee or whatnot, you know, I'm not going to be sitting there checking my phone and being interrupted. And I, for me, I, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I think we all have different thresholds of where we start to get overwhelmed and stressed. And for me, juggling social media while I'm having to get tasks done at home, while I'm trying to have a good conversation with someone else in my presence, that's just, that's just too much for me. I guess I have a low threshold. And for me, I just literally unplug basically when I'm with somebody or doing something and I don't feel guilty about it. I'm sorry for those who don't get quick, quicker responses from me, but that's what I need to do to be healthy for me. That's good. The third thing, I guess, I think I alluded to it before, is just putting myself in an environment that encourages my faith and spiritual growth. Um, so related to this, it would definitely be, you know, being involved in those support groups where you are surrounding yourself with stories of goodness as opposed to the tragedies. Sometimes even after I come home from work, you know, I maybe I have a day with patients that, you know, are pretty sick or not doing well, and it can be really discouraging and disheartening, and my mind can start rolling. And even in those moments, I just need to somehow encourage myself um, on the other side. And that could either be through reading the Bible, through prayer, through talking with people, looking at support stories. It could even be as silly as, well, it's not really silly, but reading Chicken Soup for the Soul, Cancer Edition, or I think it was the Miracles Edition. I, you know, I read that during that time, and it's still there to go back to because we all need something to encourage our faith because, at least for me, I don't think I'm unusual. You know, my faith wavers, and it's up and down, and... um so that would be a practice that I, that I need. You know, my, my faith, as it, if I get discouraged about something, I need people or something to help me um, get my faith back on track. Yeah. Well, thank you for those three very practical tips. <laughs> I like the three Ps. I'm going to use that. That's really good. <laughs> what was it again? <laughs> people, presence, priority. <laughs> Something like that. So I like it. Thank you so much for being on the Balance by Beth podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've so enjoyed listening to all your podcasts. They're all so different and unique and helpful and interesting and fun. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 
Balanced by Buff is a podcast to inspire women to live strong. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personal medical advice.